0: So according to Greek mythology, there lived a being so unbelievably handsome that he was known far and wide for his stunning beauty. He was even loved by the god Apollo due to his extraordinary physique. Friends, if you need a visual aid, look no further than C.S. Fritz. This, this guy, I'm joking, I'm hideous, but here's the truth. One day, this beautiful, beautiful man was walking by a pool called Styx, and he decided to lap down or, you know, lap up some water. But when he saw his own reflection, he was paralyzed. He was paralyzed by his beauty. I believe I have a pic. Here it is. I, I centered out. <laughs> if anybody gets weird about painted tushies or anything, I centered this out. I know Tucker gets a little creeped out by painted tushies. So... <laughs> Whatever, welcome to church. So this is Narcissus. This is him. He gazed at himself so long that he actually started to decay. But he kept on looking despite his present death. Now, he was looking and staring not because he was no longer, I mean, any handsome, but simply because if he didn't long for himself, then who would? If he didn't pine for himself, then who would? And according to myth, Narcissus is still admiring admiring himself in the underworld today, gazing at himself in the waters of Styx. Hearing his story, I wonder how much has changed from myth to our reality. Because when you think of Narcissus, what do you think of? I'll tell you what I think of, if you care. I don't know if you do or not. But you know what I immediately thought of? Shia LaBeouf. I thought of Shia LaBeouf. Does everybody here, at least, know I have a frame of reference of Shia LaBeouf? Derek, you do. You big fan of Shia. So here's here's the thing. Now I have no beef with Shia, but I do remember. Maybe you remember that a few years ago, I believe it was a few years ago, we Shia LaBeouf decided to sit down in a theater and watch all of his movies in reverse order. Do you remember? Who remembers that? Okay, so a handful of people. But here's what's hilarious. We, as audience members, were welcomed in to watch him as a camera focused on his faith. Collective Church, are you hearing what I'm saying? Are you getting what I'm saying? (laughs) Shia LaBeouf gazing at Shia LaBeouf, and as part of this project, he allowed us to watch Shia LaBeouf while Shia LaBeouf watched Shia LaBeouf. Are you picking up on this? It's an amazing day we live in. And not only the day we live in, but where we live where we live. In this day and age, I would say that Los Angeles is the pool of sticks the narcissist looked in. It is the fountainhead which creates the pool for all narcissists to gaze upon themselves. And if you don't believe me and you're saying, Casey, that's a bit harsh, maybe you'll argue with Forbes magazine. Forbes magazine said this a couple years ago in an article about narcissism. It says, Welcome to Los Angeles. The birthplace. The birthplace of narcissistic self-promotion that's currently being normalized by social media and professionalized by the personal branding movement. And only in L.A. are they cheered on to such a degree that there will be no stopping them. French theologian John Calvin says, each individual by flattering himself bears a kind of kingdom in his breast. Every one of us bearing a kingdom in our breast. So maybe you're saying... Who cares? Is this a mythological problem? Is this a geographical problem? Is this even a problem? What's the point, you handsome physique? Casey, what's the point? I want us to ask the question that what does a city, a culture, or a person become if that is our disposition, if Forbes magazine is right? Well, we're in luck. The book of Judges tells us. But, oh, mama, be warned right now Judges is not for the faint at heart. This is easily the most disturbing book in all of the Bible. If you are a fan of Stephen King or the Saw franchise, you are going to love the book of Judges. It is that disturbing. Because if you go digging through its pages, what you'd find, what you'd find, and just as a quick overview, is Dagger assassinations, internal tribal civil war, child sac- sacrifice, sex craze maniacs. So that's next week with Samson. Pagan temples, uh, sexual abuse, and today, let's just say it involves a tent peg and a temple of a forehead. It is that gnarly. So to make my point, do we know what produces those outcomes in Judges? Again, Judges tells us. Judges 21, verse 25. It says, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king because everyone was a king, bearing kingdoms in their breast. So this obsession with ourselves is so cancerous Cancerous it's as if castles and kingdoms were erected into our soul and we sit proudly upon the thrones. That is the point to the book of Judges. And because we're going to be in this for the next few weeks, we're going to now just give a little bit of structural framework to what the book of Judges looks like it entails, and entails and some of its details. So if you are a Bible nerd you want to take notes or whatever, know a couple of these details. The time period for Judges is 1380 to 1060 B.C. Why does that matter? Because it's from the death of Joshua to the death of Samson, and that's about three centuries. Three centuries people did what was right in their own eyes. It's a book completely about sin and consequences. Scholars will tell you that the primary reason for failure during this time is that nobody was obedient. People knew about God, people liked God, people wanted God, but nobody did a dang thing he said. So this book is about taking your relationship with God seriously as to not go into moral failure or catastrophic ruins. So the book is broken down in 12 stories, six long, six short, each pertaining to a leader, also called judges. But today, we are not looking at a judge, we are not looking at a priest, we are not looking at a prophet, we are not looking at a king. Today, we don't find a man who even stares at his own reflection. Today, we find a nobody. Today, we talk about a literal nobody. And yet, somehow, this nobody is forever cemented in Hebrews chapter 11. So, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, it's going to be on the screen. Barak actually starts the bullet-pointed formatting that we will have now in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Before that, it was always, by faith, blank and blank. Barak changes all of it. So you'll see as you will read it. So if you remember, the stranger, the author of the book of Hebrews says, and what more shall I say? Like literally, I've I've given you enough examples. And he goes, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon. Gideon, we'll get into a couple weeks. We're going out of order. Be cool. Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David and Samuel and the prophets. So church, Barak is listed here for something astonishing. Something absolutely astonishing. So let me just set it up. This is truly like a fairy tale because once upon time lived a wicked and oppressive leader. He had his right-hand man, the general named Sisera, and Deborah, the judge at that time, thought, you know what, I'm going to end all this. I'm going to end the oppressive leadership of this man. So she hires a warrior, Barak. Judges 4, 6 shows us. She's talking to Barak. The Lord of God commands you, Barak, to do this. But then, skip down to verse 8. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you do not go with me, Deborah, I will not go. I won't go. The Lord God commands you, no, not unless. So, total record needle scratch moment, because Barak's astonishing moment of faith is refusal. Refusal. Barak says to God's commands, no. This is his immortalized Hebrews 11 faith moment. You see, you probably like me, wonder why the amazingly talented, strong leader, Deborah, isn't in Hebrews chapter 11. Why isn't she mentioned? You wanna know the real reason? She's too awesome. Deborah is too strong. She's too great. She's too amazing to be listed. We have to talk about Barak. Barak is carelessly thrown in what seemingly seems to be for a lack of faith. I was talking to somebody earlier. I don't remember who it was, but they said, yeah, Barak is thrown in there because he's faithless. He's a loser. So then what are we missing? Everything. Everything. Commentators for decades have been slapping Barak's wrist, saying, no, he's timid. He's a baby belly. He's he's not a good one. That's for you, Moses. They're throwing him in. They're they're saying he's evil. He's not good. And all of a sudden he gets put in chapter 11 because he charges down there when the captain got you know, captured. It's a whole thing. That's the pessimistic view. But I personally align with other theologians who say, I don't buy it. He's not one of timid faith. You see, what we see in his refusal is explained by the beast that is Deborah. Look at verse 8. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't. And then she, well, certainly I will go with you said Deborah, sighing probably, but because of the course you are taking, the road you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. There it is. Did you see it? Barak's refusal is a refusal of honor seeking, or you could say a refusal of gazing at his own reflection. I truly want us to sit in this moment communally. I don't like when As a pastor and as your friend, I don't like when we see stuff like this and just move on really quick to a lesson. I want us to sit in the beauty of this moment. But because of the road you are taking, of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours. Barak is a shadow man, meaning he chooses to do his work in the shadows, wanting to not be seen by anybody except one, that being God. He is literally the polarizing opposite of narcissist who wants to see himself and others to see him. He is making an absolute refusal of his name, of his reputation. And just to show you how effective his claim was, truly before this week, how many people knew about Barak? Theo reads a lot, but all that to say is like, none of us really know who he is. He's he's a shadow man. He's probably and and I say it gently, but he's a nobody, and yet he does something totally revolutionary to the day in which we live, and that is, is he resists self-glory. He resists it. He rejects vanity. He rejects honor-seeking. He rejects reputation. He rejects legend-making. He rejects narcissism. Friends, this is humility on full array. Barak gave himself away in a moment where he could have had everything. Basically, Deborah's saying, you were about to be a legend, and you messed it up. Now, humility is something I believe we're all very familiar with, and I believe it's something we we value. It's always one of those things, if you ever ask for like a celebrity sighting, oh, I ran into Tom Hanks once. What was he like? He was so down to earth. Just a humble guy. We love humility. We value in others, right? He's like, he's a total jerk. We go, I knew it or whatever it is. like We want to value humility. So it's something we admire, and it's something we truly desire to be, yet each one of us, I think, and bear with me, might struggle to define it. All of our answers would be different in how we would say the definition of humility. And something I think we've seen in the church is the church actually more often than not wrongly defines humility. So what I thought I'd do for the next few moments is is pull in to build our own framework, to sort of pull in outside influencers to try to make something solid for how we would define humility. Author C.S. Lowe's famously said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. So that's, everybody loves that one. It's tattooed on people. It's, yeah, it's great. But okay, John Calvin, who we've already quoted, makes me think Lewis is right, but did not go far enough. Calvin says, Humility is not a kind of modesty. It is not a nice attitude before God, but it means our being utterly stripped of all that is good so that there is nothing else left to us but to cast ourselves at the feet of God. Now, does this mean that we are to have a violent, aggressive act of sacrificing our value or worth and we're left to self-loathe and say we're worms? No, far from it. Mother Teresa describes that stripping as a, is, is a false pride, being pulled away. She says it's to feel humiliated, and that is liberty. That is a liberation. The part of living for only yourself gets joyfully carved into itself, the right idea of living for somebody else. Now, Mother Teresa to John Calvin to C.S. Lewis, those are all very spiritual and could be harder to connect for our Mondays. So how do we connect this to our Mondays? This is more practical. We could also say humility is something which never asserts itself. Maybe that connects. Humility has no ego. Maybe that connects. Humility loves critique. Who in here loves critique? Humility is the abandonment of entitlement. Were any of those something that may be connected with you? Friends, I will start the ball rolling. Allow me to confess, when I think of humility in those ways, I am reminded ever so sharply that I, Casey, am not a humble man at all. I am probably easily the most prideful man in this room, hands down. I am the most proud man here. Nobody's got me beat. To just show you some some of my ways, I'm going to confess some things publicly, just to show you how bad this is. I work from home a lot, and I've noticed something that people like to turn around in our driveway all day. All day, people turn around in our driveway. Did you hear me? People are turning around in my driveway all day. No! No, no, no. So, you know what I did? I went out and I got a cone. (laughs) And you know where I placed that cone? Right in my driveway. And you know what I love to do? When I see a car trying to turn around when my cone's there, I run to the blinds and I watch people do one of these. And they don't know if they should turn in or not. Happens all day. And guess what? I feel great. I feel great. Like I did something. Like I did something to stop it. You know why? Because it's people coming in and out of my life without even talking with me. You know why it bothers me? Because they didn't ask me. You know why it bothers me? Because it's stupid. And I don't know, because I'm prideful. I am absolutely prideful and that is one of the basic biggest examples. My wife all the time sees me running to the blinds going, "Yes." She goes, "You are the grumpy old neighbor." That's true. That's just a small example of how prideful I am. But a more truthful real example is this. This sermon. There is venom channeling through my veins in this very moment, wanting so badly your freaking approval. I want your glory. I want somebody to tweet about this right now. That's how dark my heart is. Tweet about my cones. I don't care, but I want it. It is a dark, disturbing thing. Every week I get up here and I go, I sure hope Joss likes this sermon. Who cares? I don't care. I shouldn't care, but I care too much. I care far too much. That is pride. I'm not a humble man. God forgive me. So what about you? Where do you fall in the refusal of self-glory or simply how humble are you and let me just say it is a scale there's uh, in some respect it's not one way or the other it is a scale like there's no scales for women being pregnant you're either pregnant or you're not right it's not true of humility it is a scale because it is a lifelong sanctifying process so where do you fall think about it here's the thing as I just posed that question to you, you probably can't answer it. You probably can't answer because you probably go, I'm pretty humble. Well, I'm pretty humble. Yeah, I'm humble. So we can't ask you. We have to ask those who are closest to you. So if I was gonna go to your best friend or your spouse or whoever and say, would you be just as happy if you got no name credit or if you were not mentioned? What would your best friend say? If I have to go to your family and say, would you be okay if you got zero screen time? Are you okay with being second unit director? Are you okay being the assistant to the regional manager? Are you okay to lose all of your social media followers in a day? Are you okay to to, to be copied, imitated, and then the person who imitates you gets the glory? I hate it. In high school, last stupid story, I started this whole trend of not wearing your shoes. It was a really cool thing. For four years, I didn't wear my shoes, and I thought I was super cool. Other people started to do it, and they're like, hey, did you see Josh over there? Gosh, he's not wearing shoes. He's cool. It's like, I did that. (laughs) Let's make this communal. Gosh, I'm prideful. Let's make this communal. What about this church? Do you find yourself saying, this church must be more this way? Do we find ourselves saying that? This church must be more that way. This church owes me. Collective church didn't do or be what I wanted it to do or B. You know what could fix this church? Do we find our hearts saying this? You know what could fix this church? I could. My ideas. Is it safe to believe that anytime we think if I was there, it would be better? If I did the job, it would be fixed. If I wrote the script, the DC universe would completely have a chance. Is it fair to say that? Isn't that all just the hurricane that is pride, the opposing enemy of humility? I'm pretty sure we all agree that humility is a beautiful virtue, but do we consider it a necessity? Do we consider it a necessity in our life? And the way we find that out is it comes down to how dangerous we believe pride and self-entitlement is. Friends, the interplay of faith and humility not only has the power to change your life, dare I say it is the very ingredient which is going to save your life. For faith to be true, get this, for faith to be true, it is humble by nature. Because if faith is the warranted certainty that God is good and right in all things, and by humbly admitting that, by default, then we are not good and right in all things. Faith cannot be divorced from humility. I was just thinking, and just this just a sidebar, but does anybody here by chance know the very last words of John the Baptist in the Gospel of John? He said the words, he must increase and I must decrease. These were his very last words in the gospel of John in the New Testament. Jesus, his cousin, shows up and all the attention before that was on John. And then all of a sudden, in a flash of a moment, it gets shifted towards Jesus. John was the hot stuff. He was the spiritual guy. He was the baptizer. And Jesus shows up and rather than John being riddled with jealousy, he doesn't say, Jesus must increase, so I must increase too. He sees Christ doing his work better. So sit with that for a moment. Are you okay if a new and better engineer shows up? Are we okay if a new and better producer shows up? Are we okay if a new and better polished advisor shows up? And John, seeing this. His last words are, my joy is complete. He must increase and I must decrease. Barak is told straight to his face, You will receive no honor for this. And he says, Bring it. Bring it. My joy is complete. I must become microscopic. You see, what John the Baptizer, all the way to Barak, understood is and bear with me in this glory sharing, glory hogging, honor seeking is anti God. It is anti God by its very nature. All forms of that pride opposes God because it's pro you being the ruler of the kingdom that dwells in your breast. It's pro your gaze in the direction of your reflection and not his. Psalms 10.4 calls it practical atheism. Pride is practical atheism. It says, In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Every hot, searing moment of pride and self-glorification is like a flash grenade of sin and flesh trying to renounce God. Every single time. And you want to know what that is for me as Casey Fritz? That glory-seeking moment, when it happens the most? Right here. Right now. Please pray for me. Seriously. So if I can, I want to end this talk in two directions two challenges, two courses, two embraces that Barrett gives to us where we allow the stripping like Mother Teresa referred to. Because if we're honest, humility is a lovely concept. We all probably want more of it, Christian or not. But we've also accepted that it's a lifelong process which makes it feel almost unconquerable. So rather than ranting and raving saying, be humble this week, I think Barrett can show us to how, how to better humble ourselves how to humble ourselves, which is so needed. Because there are many times in the Bibles that you are holding where it says, God will do this, God will perform this, God will make this happen by his Holy Spirit. But there are are a chunk of times when it comes to humility where the Bible says, you humble yourself. You humble yourself. 1 Peter 5, humble yourselves, therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So we humble ourselves by choices, by positions, by directions, and these are two that Barak give us, and these are going to finish us out for today. Verse 12 of Judges chapter 4, here is how Barak would show us how to embrace these two ways. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, oh, I'm going to mess these up, had gone out from Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, Pay attention to that. And all the men who were with him, from Herosheth to Hagoyim, to the river of Kishon, and Deborah said to Barak, up, for this is the day which the Lord has given to Sisera and to your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. That's, That's the lesson. That's the direction. So what does any of this mean? It means Barak didn't have a chance and he charged ahead. He had zero chances of surviving. You have to see 900 iron chariots versus 10,000 men is 900 tigers versus 10,000 roly-polies. That's the equivalent. It cuts through them like butter. There is no chance for Barak to survive. And Barak, knowing the unfair advantages, embraces it. This, to me, might be the most revolutionary part of faith and humility, that we are to embrace our deficits and we are to waive the humility our inability as a banner above our heads. Judges show us that Deborah was the one who had the presence of God. Judges show us that Barak had no way of winning and he knew it. See, where most Christians are not believed that flaws and deficits are dead ends, Barak expresses that a sincere and humble embracing of our flaws is the central path to Jesus Christ. It's not a dead end, it's the only way. So what might your deficits be? If you already know, you can write them down. (laughs) What might your deficits be? Is it my marriage is in shambles? Is your deficit that I'm single and it's killing me? Is your deficit that I am not cut out for this city and for this job? Is your deficit that I cannot stand my children? Is your deficit that I have a handicap? What if embracing those is the way, the path to humility? to the humble Jesus rather than constantly just trying to push it aside or fix it or solve it. What if Jesus is like, that is the way to humility. By a deficit or a gap existing, that gives room for what's good and godly to move in. Gaps and deficits are good. Limitations are good. So if you want to be humble and you should, then embrace your limitations. And for the single greatest reminder of our deficit, oh, the humiliating death of Jesus Christ. This should humble us immediately, Christian or not. Preacher Martin Lloyd Jones, this quote is so epic, I wish I could totally plagiarize it, but I'm just gonna read it to you. He says, There's only one thing I know of that crushes me to the ground and humiliates me to the dust, and that is to look at the Son of God and especially contemplate the cross. Nothing else can do it. When I see that I am a sinner, and that nothing but the Son of God on the cross can save me, I am humbled, I am humbled, I am humbled to the dust. Nothing but the cross can give us the spirit of humility. It's actually quite ironic that the most humble person who ever walked the earth was tortured to death because he was accused of blasphemous arrogance. That is ironic. His torturing soberly shouts to each and every one of us, I am here because of you. I am picking you up. I am here, I am on this cross because of your deficit. It is your sin I am bearing. It is your curse I am suffering. It is your debt I am paying. It is your death I am dying. Show me something more stripping than that, that you can't save yourself, that you can't pull yourself up. When was the last time you couldn't pull yourself up? As, you, as an adult, have you, when was the last time you did it? It is humbling, radically humbling. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness. That is, until one stops gazing at his own reflection and starts gazing at the cross, we will not be able to shrink to our size. Embrace the deficit. And I'll end with this, the last embrace. Verse 16, read with me. And keep up with me on this one, this is gnarly. And Barak pursued the chariots, and the army of Herosheth, Hagogia, Duran, do it for me. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera, remember that's the evil captain working for the oppressive leader, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabed and the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. Lots of wordiness. It's coming. Get ready for this. Verse 18. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into her tent, and she covered him with a rug. Because we all know if somebody's hiding, they're never going to find you underneath a rug. So we just totally get the thought process. (laughs) And he said to her, Please, Give me a little drink of water for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk, ew, and gave him a drink and covered him. I have no water. I've got warm milk. Here you go, buddy. Shh. Oh my gosh. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man comes and asks you, is there anyone here? Say no. Complete polar opposite of last week if you were here for Rahab. But, Jael, the wife of Heber, took a a tent tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Oh, it's coming. And then she went softly to him. Holy crap. And drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground. He was lying there fast asleep from weariness. He's lying there. He's living. Then he died. Holy crap. In verse 22, And behold, as Baer pursuing Sisera, jail, went to the house to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you're seeking. Basically, I finished the job. He stapled to the floor. Come on in, I'll show you. Who wants warm milk? Come on in. So we went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. Deborah was right. Another woman would get the reputation and the honor. But that did not stop Barak from working his little heart out. Every instance, pretty much every instance of him being mentioned in the Bible, it is him in action. He is uh, Judges 4.14, Barak charged. uh, Judges 4.16 and 22, pursuing. Judges 4.10, he called out. He's always busy. So what does this show us? It shows us that Barak didn't lollygag or half-heartedly get the job done because somebody else was going to get the glory. Oh, I'm not going to get the promotion? Come on, let's be honest. We're not going to push as hard. I'm not going to get the title credit. Is our disposition one in where we approach one another, we approach this church, we walk through these doors thinking that if I'm humble enough, I will pursue and work as hard for somebody else's glory as if it's my own. Is that our disposition here this morning? Honestly, this talk, in a lot of ways, it's so simple that it's ridiculous. I understand that. But if you want to do a self-assessment of your own humility, do you humbly embrace the work? If we embrace the deficit, well, I'd actually say this: if if embracing the deficit is the heart, then this is the hands, embracing the work. Now let me make this practical. There are many ways to serve God. There's many ways to serve God in your life, at your work, at your school. Um, crew, navigators, Bible studies, your people are tutoring. It's happening all the time. We are all serving God. But I do need to just address this because I want to encourage our church when it comes down to humility and work and servanthood, I'm going to just say it. May we never forget to prioritize our local church family. There's so many great things you're doing, but I want us to continually go, how can I serve my local church family? family. Because what would this church look like if we lived Philippians 2 where it says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That is talking to a local church context. See, we talk about this all the time. We talk about volunteering and engagement and investing all the time. And if we had 100 Christians in this room, and 99 of them were engaged in volunteering and serving one another, we would still pound this drum just as hard. We would, so I'm only talking to those who consider this community. They consider this their family. I'm going to talk to you for just a moment. If we do that, but there is zero, I want to humbly come in here and serve, either in discipleship, stirring one another, singing with one another, volunteering, setting up chairs, whatever could possibly be. I'm going to say something very challenging, but that is more testament to your humility than it is to this church. I hope that makes sense. We believe so rightly that if we are to truly love one another, that humbles us. If we're true to love God, that humbles us to the point we're going, I'm going to walk through these doors and go, where and who can I serve? Who can I make more important than me in this very moment? And that is what Jesus says, true greatness. That is what Jesus calls true Greatness. I went over my time. What I want to do right now is pray and invite this church to really consider these two directions, these two embraces, to consider the low place. So pray with me.